Welcome to Retaining the Passion, Journeys Through Nursing. This is a non-affiliated podcast. Any views expressed by the hosts or guests do not necessarily represent those of the organizations they work for or are studying at, or any trade unions or professional bodies they are members of. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode four. Today, we're going to talk about COVID and the impact it's had on nursing. But before we do, we're going to just do our regular feature. So, Craig, what was the first thing you've done this week? Well, I don't want to start the episode on a downer, but I've always been um, very open about nursing experiences on social media. And I was on um, nights for four nights together this week. And Obviously, it's the um, change of new doctors coming in and rotation. Yeah. So things are quite different on the wards. Uh, I don't know, for people that have an experience of working on the wards, There's you have a much more skeleton staff. So I was on with two very experienced um, senior staff nurses, luckily. So I had nine patients of my own who I was looking after. And just it so happened that when you've got your nine patients, if they're all quite stable, it's very easy to look after them all. And generally on night shift, things are easier because you don't have regular scans. You're not really trying to plan discharges. However, if one patient gets quite acutely unwell, you can generally cope and that's easier to manage. But I had two patients on my side that got quite acutely sick at the same time and for the first time ever, I felt really quite overwhelmed in what I was doing. Um, I did get a lot of help from the the staff nurses that I was on with, but I'm not going to lie, I had a wee bit of tears in my eyes and a moment in a solution. I was like, have I made the right decision coming into nursing? And that was just a bit of a shock to me because that's the first time I've, yeah. I've ever felt like that. I am. Um, and yeah, nights mess with you, don't they? They mess with you physically and mentally, and you haven't got yeah. the same, you know, I you, you can't phone your mates because they're asleep, and you've yeah. not got that same support network. So you are a lower. Yeah, it end, just was kind of a bit of a, gut, a gutter punch in the stomach, and I just yeah. kind of. I'm going for all the metaphors here. Just kind of felt like I had the a carpet pulled out from under me because it was just a bit of a shock. Like I absolutely managed, but I just was like oh my goodness like it just it just kind of threw me I went home had a wee cry phoned my mum who's a nurse and she was like you're gonna be fine I went home had a very long sleep and then went in the following night and things were absolutely great and I got some lovely feedback from the patients that I was looking after so I was like oh no all is good in the world but yeah I just it was that overwhelming feeling it's good to yeah and it's good to acknowledge that we all have those days you know I had a day where I wanted to just crawl underneath my desk and hide (laughs) because it can be overwhelming and especially like we're talking about COVID today that adds another layer of stress and anxiety to everybody's world so yeah I think it's interesting when we like talk about COVID because now is the summertime and generally nurses at this time of year things are kind of okay like obviously we've Mm. got everything that's regularly going on but it's generally the winter time when the pressure really hits up, particularly in the acute settings. You have yeah. the flus and the pneumonias. So staff are already knackered and exhausted now. So we'll go on to talk about this more, I'm sure. Um, yeah. But people are already exhausted now and fractured. And then 
I think it's the anticipation of, oh God, what's coming next? What's coming, yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. But anyway, we will get to that. What is your first time for everything this week? Well, mine, mine is COVID related. So I had my antibody test ah. um, I've been on annual leave this week but just before I went off I had my antibody test which <clears throat> I am the worst person to get blood out of I always feel really sorry for anybody who's uh, new at uh, puncture because my veins aren't great so it took three different occasions but finally got some got some blood out and had my antibody test and I've not had I've not got antibodies so ah. I've not had COVID so I've I've decided that I must be a supreme hand washer did um, you um, think that you'd had it um, I had, I was poorly, just after I started, probably about end of April, and I did have a COVID test, because I had quite a tight chest, which I, that's not something I ever, I don't have any kind of breathing issues, um, and that came back negative, but I wasn't sure whether, you know, I'd done the test right, or, you know, you hear that there's lots of false negatives, so I wasn't sure, and I was quite intrigued, because obviously a lot of people have have COVID and don't know they've had it so I was quite intrigued and yeah I think I kind of was hoping maybe I had had the antibodies because I think no matter what you know logically you still well I definitely do have an anxiety of what will happen if stroke when I get it am I going to be one of these people that ends up in hospital how will that affect you know what if I get it and then everybody else in my house gets it so I guess I was disappointed to one extent that I didn't have the antibodies, but it was good to know as well because people in my in work have had it. Um, okay. So, yeah, it was good to know, but we're quite socially distanced from the people that we work with because we're community, so we're able to stay quite far apart. So, yeah, so that was my first time for everything, so COVID-related. Yeah. Um, I think it's so weird that the government aren't doing routine antibody tests or even just general COVID tests on nursing staff. Like, yeah, it's all, I, I've kind of, I mean, we've gone back into this, so I live in Greater Manchester, for those who yeah. don't know. So we've gone back into this strange semi-lockdown kind of thing. It's a bit odd. And so I've been on annual leave and my plan had been to take my kids and go and see my sister down south and catch up with a few friends. But we're not allowed to go to anybody else's house or garden. Um, We can go to the pub and we can go to shops, but we can't go to people's houses or gardens. So I've been really good and followed the rules. I know a lot of people have kind of interpreted and, and stuff. And I really struggled with it because the rules make no sense. Yeah. but I, you know, I have followed them and I have done hopefully the right thing, but that's been really hard. So I've had a week of annual leave where I feel a bit disappointed because it hasn't felt like annual leave. It's just felt like sitting at home waiting. So yeah, it's been a bit of an odd few weeks, but anyway, all COVID related. We, we managed to catch up with somebody who's quite interesting and talk to her about the impact of nursing. Craig and I are absolutely delighted today to talk to Anne-Marie Rafferty, who is the President of the Royal College of Nursing and Professor of Health Policy at King's College London. So welcome, Anne-Marie. It's really lovely to have you today. That's great to be here, Claire and Craig. Thank you so much. 
So our topic is, I'm sure, one we will come back to on numerous occasions over the coming years, really. But we're going to do our first podcast on COVID and specifically talking about the impact on nursing. But before we start, we ask this to all of our guests, which is just to tell us a little bit about your personal story and how you've got to where you've got to a bit of an insight into your life and you're willing to share with our listeners. Well, thanks very much, Claire. I mean, I guess I would say that being president of the Royal College of Nursing is the pinnacle of my career. And, you know, I'm absolutely thrilled and so proud to be in that position. I've got an academic background, as you've already uh, indicated. And so most of my life has been spent in academe and switching at times between academe and the clinical So uh, without going through all of the manoeuvres in my (laughs) career, which might take a little while, uh, maybe some of the highlights or if there's a thread that I would uh, pull out, it's been trying to influence policy for change. And I got really developed an interest in that when I was, you know, a student, in fact, which, uh, you know, you've just graduated from being And uh, I've really carried that passion with me throughout my career. And uh, in fact, I think the particular attraction and excitement about being president is that you not only get a kind of cockpit view of policy influence from the college's perspective, you know, as the college is a crucible for policy leverage and, and change, But I've also had the opportunity to contribute to some of that through my research uh, activity. And uh, that, of course, has very much been a team effort. I've worked with some fabulous researchers, one of whom was just recently, Jane Ball, elected to to be a a fellow of the college as well. Yes, all that. Yeah, over the years, I've focused on workforce, evidence generation, that evidence has threaded through into the college's work, the legislative effort in Wales, and uh, I was very fortunate to give evidence to the health committee there. And, uh, you know, our evidence has also been used in, in Scotland and elsewhere, and I hope also it will support the case for safe staffing, we'll call it that for short, legislation in England. So it's, it's really exciting, I think, to see your academic work climb down from the ivory tower (laughs) and actually be put to work and good good use because ultimately and I think this is a principle that Florence Nightingale really got evidence is a tool for persuasion it's a form of rhetoric really and although it might, might be quantified in numbers you know numbers of nurses in terms of levels of staffing and out impact on patient outcomes such as mortality we can actually quantify that impact but it is also used as part of the apparatus of argument in creating a broader kind of case for change so I think that's been one of the overwhelming kinds of threads that's fueled my passion and I was quite fortunate as a student uh, at Edinburgh University which was first university in Europe to actually offer undergraduate degrees to, to nurses, to be, you know, in an environment where there was also a, a nursing research unit. So I was exposed to this, you know, research game quite early on in my in my career. And it was something which always attracted me. I had this probably quite romantic and idealistic <laughs> 
notion that ideas and knowledge and evidence and research could actually change hearts and minds if they were targeted in the right way. And I had seen some cases of that from the the nursing research unit in in, in Edinburgh. And I was probably a bit of a an oddball student who used to really enjoy going to the seminars there and hanging out with the researchers. And that was something which I've kind of carried with me. And quickly after I qualified as uh, as a surgical nurse, I went to work in a fabulous uh, regional vascular unit at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. I was hankering after study. So I wasn't long out of the student traps when I was beginning to wonder, like I'm sure some of you, well, I actually had withdrawal effects from study, even though I have to say the beginning of my academic career, I didn't have much in the way of study skills and realised, you know, you had to kind of get yourself on students mm. to make up for loss. It's sounding time. very familiar. Right, spending far too much time rather than sitting down with the books. So uh, that's, that's, that's a bit of a misspent youth there. But anyway, I was very keen on getting back into the academic saddle and fortunate enough to be supported to get a scholarship to go and have a twin kind of academic clinical uh, position at Nottingham University and Queen's Medical Centre. And and then from then, I made a little kind of diversion into into studying history, uh, history of medicine, history of nursing. And I was fortunate enough again to get a scholarship to go to Oxford and that was just pretty mind-blowing actually because yeah you know all of my intellectual idealism just was like you know the floodgates were open and it's a very obviously it's a very privileged environment at one level and that in some ways was quite tricky and intimidating because you know I came from a very modest background but uh, I felt that Oxford paradoxically was really welcoming and embracing mm. of people who were a bit different and actually I, you know, I was very lucky to be taken on to as a as a as a as a DPhil student by my supervisor Charles Webster who's a official historian of the of the National Health Service and in a unit that really valued I think the social aspect of the social history of medicine and that that social could quite often morph into socialist as well, it has to be said. There was <laughs> a strong ethos. I think and one of the reasons I, I think perhaps I you know, was able to, to go there was that uh, they were keen to develop a kind of broad spectrum approach to the social history of medicine, which was really beginning at that time. The history of medicine being dominated by retired doctors, you know, very much into the sort of Hagiography, the sort of hero worship of these great men, has to be said, mainly in in the pantheon of medicine. So these guys were quite keen to sort of knock a few of those books off their pedestals. And I think they were welcoming to people who didn't fit the norm. So, yeah, it was one up for the nurses there. So that was great. And after that, I was I was clinical te- clinical teaching in John Radcliffe, and I did other jobs at the same time as studying. And I, I then was recruited back to Nottingham to the new school of nursing that was developing from that little acorn of an academic unit that I'd previously been at. And then was really, you know, so fortunate in being able to win a Hartness Fellowship in Health Policy and go and study in the mm. US 
University of Pennsylvania with the magnificent and fabulous Linda Aiken. And that began a 25-year relationship of collaboration in doing some of the biggest, most influential studies on the nursing workforce and crafting that evidence base. Uh, You know, such a privilege to be part of that. But I I picked up from Linda, you know, I I don't know of anyone who is more eloquent and articulate in speaking truth to policymakers and using evidence in doing so. And that's what really impressed me when I when I first met her and heard her speak at uh, a conference in Phoenix of the American Academy of Nursing, which was the first gig that she invited me to. And she was laying out the first findings demonstrating this connection between nurse staffing and patient mortality. And everybody in the room was literally blown away, blown away by it. You, know, you could have heard a pin drop. And I just thought, wow, we're in the midst of greatness here. And this is incredibly powerful ammunition. And we've got to learn to use it. So that Hartness Fellowship was very important because it gave you a network of very influential people uh, in health and elsewhere, other disciplines, that would also become some of my best friends. So that was fantastic. And then I got recruited to London to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to you know, set up a little think tank and research policy. And that was amazing. And uh, that was a really rich and vibrant multidisciplinary environment. It was a postgraduate medical school and worked with the RCN uh, as a kind of in an alliance, strategic alliance to try and use the RCN's research nows and networks to be able to leverage change in funding for mm-hmm. nursing and allied uh, health professions. And actually, we managed to do that eventually by providing the evidence base and the policy justification to invest in nursing and allied health. So that was like tick on actually getting practice, <coughs> influencing policy change. And then I was recruited to King's to be the dean of the Florence Nightingale faculty, now of nursing midwifery and palliative care. And so that gave me a different kind of gig in academic leadership, still doing research, and then eventually the presidency of the RCN. I have so many. I know. Oh, my God. Just a few things that you've done. I could ask you questions about so many of this, and and it's going to be really hard. We're going to have to have you on for about 20 different episodes because I have so many things I could ask you about, but we're going to really try and keep it to COVID, but so many things to ask. It's really nice to hear you say you've made lots of friends as well in your nursing because that's really special to Craig and I, I think, as well. So it's nice to know that it's not. It's not just us that feel that. Yeah. Amory, you have had such like a hugely inspirational and aspirational career talking. Mm. And it's so important that you're talking about the way evidence can influence that policy change and why it's so important undergraduate status of nursing and understanding how to interpret and use that evidence. So both Claire and I are so interested in hearing your opinion specifically. So we know nursing has been in the news throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and there's been very clear examples of how the profession has responded to the crisis. But I'm just interested, what do you think the long-term effects of the pandemic are going to be on nursing as a profession? That's a very big topic, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) Just a few um, minutes on that. I, I know, exactly. I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball because... I think many people are asking this question about, you know, how is it all going to pan out? And I think the one thing that we know about the virus is it's pretty unpredictable. I mean, you know, if you just got to look at the beginning of the pandemic and the modelling that was done about how it was it was going to spread, 
Some of that has actually been on cue and and reasonably accurate, but a lot of it hasn't. I mean, and and the fact that it's such a social virus, it loves people, doesn't it? And it's different from previous, like flu and SARS, other types of SARS virus, because it is so easily passed on from one person to another. I think, you know, that that's what makes it quite particular and mm. difficult, I mean, difficult to contain. And one of the things that's come through in a, a recent report from the Nuffield Trust, which has compared Britain to other countries, mainly European, is, is actually, ooh, it's a wee bit of a, you know, a gloomy prognostication, mm. but how slow potentially our recovery from this might be. And the reason is because, well, one, well, we started, and I'll just focus on the nursing piece here. We started the, pan, the pandemic with a deficit of 40,000 nurses. Yeah. Yeah. So not in good shape to begin with. There were all sorts of um, hiccups, let's just call them that, in terms of the uh, speed of the response and, you know, getting the right PPE equipment in the right place, right time. And we know that that has probably not helped to contain the virus. Probably the opposite has happened as a consequence of the the slow start in mounting those preparations at scale and at pace and going into lockdown. And it's not just in the NHS, of course, social care has been hugely impacted. And that's an area that I'm really worried about because from the RCN's own data, we know that there's something like, honestly, I couldn't believe it, a third of the nurses from social care have left. I know, it's shocking. It is. I mean, you know, this is such an important support kind of strut for for the health service. And if that's so underpowered and the infrastructure there is so wobbly and precarious, mm. it's simply just not enough people, people out there yeah. with the right kind of skills to implement social distancing and maintain that, which of course must be one of the most phenomenal challenges yeah. in a home with people who have, you know, got have dementia. And you've got much less flexibility in your capacity to move people, or you know, around. Yeah. So that's really worrying. I think I'm beginning to sound like a doom merchant. I'll get onto some positives in a minute. <laughs> um, but but you know, when you think of that, looking at it from that end of the telescope, and then the fact that our own survey has demonstrated that a third of nurses who are in the service at the moment are thinking of leaving. Yeah. Um. Coupled with the, and one big word that worries me, and you hear it and then you think, well, what does that mean, really? It's called exhaustion. Mm. People are just super tired and with low reserve. And I, that's, I guess that's that physical and psychological exhaustion. Without going into figures on burnout, even our own survey, the ICON survey, which the Research Society from the RCN has been collaborating on with other academic partners. We found from the first survey that we did that was really 
as the pandemic was beginning to build, that a third of our nurses were registering as quite severely distressed and depressed. Yeah. And we know from previous pandemics that a significant proportion of nurses go on to develop PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. And that's ravaged certain of our communities and, you know, disproportionately impact our at-risk vulnerable populations such as our black and minority ethnic colleagues. Mm. And now at-risk protection is being implemented and some of it, you know, with that group. But also this is a quite a complex area too. Some for all staff as well, which actually you might say that's another version of taking universal precautions. Mm. And so... I think the toll and the tax on the system, the infrastructure, the economy, well, I mean, that is going to be, you know, that is really, really scary. I think it was something like, so far, the total bill for PPE alone is 15 billion. And that's going to continue to build, right? That's just going to keep Yeah, it's not going away. It's not going to get smaller. It's multiplying. Mm. and ours is a very people-intensive industry. So it's the time really to be building, Craig, as you said, that legacy for the future and actually demanding in our, and ambitious in, in our ask of government, not just on the pay side, which clearly is beginning to pot up uh, in terms of its uh, political salience and entry into the political uh, debate, but Thinking of the global kind of impact, you know, it's not as if, and there was a report recently from the International Council of Nurses on nurse migration, we can't just turn on the taps to compensate for our lack of domestic sustainability and lack of the historic investment in nurse education over many years, you know, the boom-bust kind of cycle that we've been trapped in, really, Um, I'm not saying that as if we've been passive victims of that. You know, that has been imposed on us and we've been fighting that good fight. So I think we need to really do something radically different this time, Mm -hmm. capitalise on it, because we've got the pressure from not being able to turn on the migration tap as as previously. You know, Brexit has meant that we don't have a ready and steady supply of nurses from other parts of Europe. Yeah. We're much more thrown back on our own resources. So, you know, although students have risen to the challenge and had extended placements and just done an amazing kind of job there, I mean, that was just extraordinary. And I was speaking to a group of students the other day. What's interesting, I think, about our students, and I would really like to see some work done on this so that we can put the cases. I think there's contextual data needs to go into the student uh, support for fees, you know, and for perhaps debt forgiveness and maintenance. And actually, because many, you know, there's mature students who are coming into nursing and we've, many people have got responsibilities and with the prospect of increasing unemployment, Mm. nurses might be the only earners in their families and families increasingly rely on that. So I think that's another part of the case for challenge and for change. And so I think using the, partly if you like, the kind of doomsday scenario (laughs) 
to, to really talk about this burning platform that we that we have. I just think there's been an assumption, and we've we've seen this in Northern Ireland as well, that nurses will just continue to cope and take what comes yeah. their way. And actually, we've got to really, and we are drawing that line. And we've seen from Northern Ireland what happens when we are just pushed too far. And when we take power into our own hands, we can actually make the change happen. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what's been very, very encouraging. But the profile of nursing has never been greater. The visibility to the public and to politicians and policymakers. And whilst we've got that kind of draft, if you like, of public support behind us, we've got to use it. We've got to try and keep the dialogue with the public active and proactively flowing so that they're actually also speaking to our subjects and our topic. And it's not just us articulating this. Other professionals too. I mean, the guy, Adam Kay, who wrote, you know, this might hurt, you know, yeah. That, yeah. that, yeah. Well, I mean, he he made he wrote this article in The Guardian, I can't remember exactly what triggered it, but um, actually, no, I think it was a review of um, the fabulous Christy Watson's um, Language of Kindness. Yeah. yeah. And, and he said, oh gosh, I'm a wee bit ashamed of myself, to be quite honest, but I didn't quite <laughs> say it like that. But, you know, I ha- I'm a doctor and I have been working with nurses for a number of years. And do you know what? I haven't honestly paid nursing nearly enough attention. I had no idea really how expert and skilled nurses were mm. and the labour of carrying that enormous responsibility. So it was a bit of an eye-opener for him and humbling, I think he, he, was, he was saying as well. I think that's what COVID has done. It's kind of opened up the black box yeah. of skill and expertise to the world Definitely want to see, and we've got to kind of capture that. We've got to bottle it somehow and use it in all of our influencing and, and lobbying moving forward and have a clear view of what our ask actually is. And I, I think we can take a lot of inspiration from the State of the World's Nursing Report. Yeah, and I think we've what I've seen certainly, you know, as a student and then through this COVID echoes what you've said in that there seems to be a more united voice with nurses because of that, I think. I think that because the public has maybe opened the doors and looked at what we really do and, and we're maybe more rightly being proud of what we what we've learned, what you know, look, you look at your career and, and the variety that we've got in academia and clinical excellence and all those kind of things. And so we've maybe united in our pride a little bit and our conviction to say, well, actually, we can. This is what we do. And you should justifiably um, respect us for what we do, which has been for me a positive, you know, as well as the dooms, the doomsday scenario you've painted there's been some maybe some bits of um, positivity so I guess because Craig and I both started work as newly registered nurses in the pandemic not something we were trained for for either of us and really different we've talked about this on previous podcasts because Craig is an adult nurse on a ward and I'm a mental health nurse in the community so even outside of the pandemic our experience would have been different but they've been vastly different I think during this sort of past few months and so I, I I suppose this is quite a difficult question to answer solely for us, but what do you think in terms of newly registered nurses, how our journey will be affected by the pandemic and, and how we can still try and make the most of opportunities that are presented to us 
it despite that. Yeah, well, I think that is an amazing, you know, it's an amazing opportunity. Every crisis is also an opportunity. And, you know, don't waste a good crisis in that sense. <laughs> well, because I think actually things are more in flux. And in a sense, I think if you're clear about what your goals are, you might be able to find a way to position and kind of maneuver your way through a system. And I think it's probably the time to be quite demanding of the system as well. What I mean by that is that you're coming through as graduates. And I think one of the subtle reasons that people are maybe a little sceptical about graduates is, I mean, certainly policymakers, is because perhaps they think it means, oh, these nurses will not put up with the conditions that our previous generations, perhaps, of nurses have tolerated because you have other options. And although, obviously, nobody wants you to go elsewhere and and we want you to succeed and continue to commit to and develop your own skills, we have got to have uh, in this, at this time, also a very, I think, a clear understanding of your generation's particular types of aspirations. And so I think that your opportunity to, if you're clear or just, you know, talk to people about what's possible, what's feasible. I think if COVID has taught us anything, it's that people can quickly learn and acquire new skills and adapt and be super agile. Definitely in doing things differently. So I think we're not going to have this back to the way things were with pre-COVID. Already, you know, you can see people working in teams. They want to get back to their old teams. But patient pathways are probably going to change uh, Mm -hmm. as a consequence of COVID in any case. And I think it's like using your intellectual skills to kind of be reading the ruins and what's going on in terms of service redesign, getting a piece of that action, asking constantly. You know, it's like carrying over your student sort of spirit of inquiry and never letting that go and saying, oh, I'd love to do this, I'd love to do that. Um, Can I have a wee go at X or whatever it is? You know, as well as saying, I've been thinking, I'd love to buddy someone or be men, you know, you want to be able to, and I was a bit like this, probably a pain in the neck, actually, <laughs> at one level. But, you know, seeking out opportunities and not and asking, because, you know, you find out more often than not, people find it quite hard to say no. So <laughs> they, much more often they say yes. Yeah, I never even thought about that, but why not? Yeah, give it a go. So um, I would be quite forthright in saying, I'd love to do this. And getting people to help you be able to fulfill your your dreams. I mean, it's it's funny looking back, you know, and you asked me about my career at the beginning. And I think, you know, I've been able to do things that I never dreamt would be possible. So I suppose I'm sort of encouraging you to kind of just dream and say, what do what do I really want to do? What would be like awesome? to get a wee taste of or to experience 
I think design your own dreamlike future in nursing and then find out, okay, so how are we going to how are we going to build this, you know, together with X, Y, or Z and do that. And I'm not just, you know, I it's interesting to think about the nursing kind of piece, but I was always very interested in chatting with the doctors as well and asking them questions and etc. And so wherever there's knowledge, you sh- you know, you're still harvesting it, you know, yeah. and trying to kind of garner and 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 pull it in so that you're you're growing and developing as as a practitioner. So I think figuring out what your what are your wee dream tickets and then just go and ask folk if you can do it and say, yeah, I really want to do that. No, I love that because that's something that Claire and I are both very, we set um, goals for what we want to do. And it's about how do you join the dots together to make that happen? Because I think... I'm just laughing because I think everybody except our husbands probably delight in that idea. (laughs) Both Patrick and Stuart are probably like, enough, stop putting your hands up for things. We'll have to do a whole other podcast on maintaining a relationship while saying yes to stuff in nursing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, Amory, that was great advice there. Is just as we close up, is there one small piece of advice you can give to our listeners? It can be practical, personal, big or small, just about how to get your name known out there in the world of nursing in the right way. Well, I guess the main tool that we've all got as human beings is communication, isn't it? So, and I mean, you you guys are clearly doing a great job of finding a way to connect with people. So no matter what sphere of life you're operating in, that expression of empathy, that capacity to connect with people. And one of the great gifts and facilities that nurses have and they develop over time is you've got to be able to be thrown in to any situation and be able to talk to anyone, don't you? Yeah. And, and from a huge range of different backgrounds. And so I think that's, you know, the soft power of nursing gives you a huge, let's just call it um, evolutionary advantage in how to get on in life and actually help people to get, you know, on your ticket as well and understand your, where, where you're coming from. And so different ways of doing that connecting, be it through social media, as, as, as your guys are doing, that's the sort of modus operandi of your generation. A wee bit harder for the old lags like myself. But um, I think writing, performing, any a form of expression enables you to, to hone your uh, empathy skills because ultimately... You know, that's the winning ticket of nursing. And I don't think that we recognise that quite enough. I, I always, you know, I'm always stunned by nurses and how just in the course of every day, and it's really interesting on council. I'm so admiring of everyone in council, but, you know, I think, wow, especially our clinicians are doing that because I've seen them in the workplace and stuff. What They're contending with on a day-to-day basis. And then they're coming to council to contribute and be eloquent about policy as well. But they have no, you know, they as in the collective, they, we as a, as a collective, I don't think really recognise how creative we are in problem solving and troubleshooting. And that is 
honestly, if we were, that is gold. That is absolute gold. And it's a hugely transferable skill as well. And throw any problem at nurses and we will find a way out of it. So nurses need to and are leading the way out of this pandemic. If we do not have a strong nursing force, I'm going to call it that, all nursing staff, you know, we will not be able to get out, speed out of this pandemic as quickly as we need to. And we need to reinforce that message and help nurses acknowledge and appreciate in a sort of appreciative inquiry kind of way, Mm -hmm. just how stunningly brilliant they and we actually are at problem solving. And I honestly believe that if there are more nurses at the table designing policy for the future, and this is why we need shared governance, Mm -hmm. we need to strengthen nursing leadership across the piece at every level, but especially in the senior ranks, because we currently don't have enough nurses at that level to support the nurse, the, the workforce that's coming yeah. below. Yeah. And that is essential for participating in designing the policies of the future. So we really need to ramp up that leadership and get more people progressing through so that we can stabilise that leadership function and take it forward to influence the future. That's great. And, and I'm sure we could both talk to you for hours, but our time is, is drawing to an end. Paul Craig seems to record these all the time when he's on nights and I know he's got to shoot off. But if people want to hear more from you, Amory, uh, how do they find you on social media or where can they catch up with you? Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter, but I what am I? Your Twitter handle is Anne Marie Raffer. <laughs> Thank you very much, Anne Raffer. <laughs> I'm not a rapper. I'm a raffer. You're a rapper. <laughs> I'm not a we'll rapper sure, yet. Maybe we'll make sure we rapping. tag you. We'll make sure we tag you and everything so that our listeners can hear. But thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking well, to you today. It's a pleasure, pleasure as always. That was fantastic and inspiring. It's lovely to hear from Amory, I think, and her experience. Like I could just ask her questions about all the things she's done for days on end. We could have chatted for ages, but... A really interesting insight, I think, into the workforce, really, yeah. as well as COVID for me, and reflecting back that we were already low on nursing numbers before this began. Yeah, and so many things to think England. about. Yeah, I know. And, you know, that those were difficult to fill. And I think we have, I think one of the things we, we have to think about is that supply chain. So she mentioned the lack of nurses coming from abroad and from the EU in particular, but we also have to think about student nurses. So although, you know, and it's been documented loads and we've talked about it, the incredible response from students, you know, some students have been shielding, some have chosen to do the theory route, some have chosen to delay their course. So we are going to have a reduction in in nurses coming yeah. into the profession to fill that already existing backlog. And like and I said then, right at the start, the nurses who are in the workforce at the moment are already knackered. Like yeah. We've just come through this first 
hurdle of COVID-19. There may or may not be a second peak. Then we'll have the usual winter pressures and people are already knackered. And it's relentless, isn't it? I think it's that. I think there's so many different sides to it. And Amory talked about the impact on nurses' mental health. And I think that's, we can't underestimate that. You know, I mentioned it when I talked earlier about that I'd had my antibody test. That feeling of, am I putting myself at risk? Am I putting my my children at risk and we we had a really good friend of ours who and I know a lot of people did this but we know somebody quite well who you know she went away she left her kids for seven eight weeks I think and that's a big commitment to do and are people going to have to do or feel they have to do that again or are they going to address things in a different way is that anxiety of passing it on to elderly relatives or family or friends going to add so much pressure to an already pressured environment and then on top of that we've got certainly I think in mental health services we're preparing for an influx of our colleagues coming in with mental health issues and all of those things combined together to make the workforce quite an uncertain I think it's uncertainty at the moment that's quite difficult to manage yeah no absolutely I think it's so scary and I think we would be remiss for not acknowledging as well when we're talking about the impact of COVID on nursing the amount of people that work in health and social care who very sadly have died from the disease so we've also got their colleagues and families who are dealing with the immense impact of that, which very much yeah. links into what you were saying about PTSD. We have tragically lost colleagues' lives. I know. And I was reading an article earlier today that the UK have actually lost the most health and social care workers out of any country reported. Now, that may be to do with statistical reporting and how yeah. these deaths are reported in each country, still but it's still a, a shocking figure. Yeah, it is. And, and that just we're not through it are we so when we're talking about these things yeah that's the tough bit it's not like we're looking back on something reflecting on it thinking of lessons learned feeling sad but having this way forwards we are in this strange uncertain world where we don't know if that figure is going to stay the same go up double triple we don't know what's going to happen with it and that makes things really difficult you're fighting an unknown challenge aren't you and I think you know we can't underestimate how difficult that is and when you're talking about people being exhausted we also have to remember that we're at the beginning of our careers where yeah. we have those moments of uncertainty and have you know i certainly sat there thinking I don't know if I can do this and you know and then pulling yourself together and getting on with it but we've got that excitement and that that feeling of, of freshness and, and newness. Yeah. We have to, you know, look at other people who've been nursing for 20, 30, 40 years who are exhausted by years of underfunding and cuts and restructuring and, you know, all the things that the NHS suffers from. They're already exhausted. And actually, 
they, they might retire rather yeah, than continue. And also the complete disregard they've had by successive governments on pay. If we yeah. look at pay, nurses now, with what has happened, even with the pay rise that was negotiated, think whatever you, you will of that, but even with that, nurses now are paid 20% less than they were in terms of inflation. Six years and how ago, that's yeah. Worked. Yeah. yeah. So that's ridiculous. And it is particularly, I mean, it's hard at the beginning, you and I are both band five, I don't get any enhancements because I work in the community. We're both looking at joining the bank, getting yeah. extra work, doing those kind of things. So it's tough at the beginning. But actually, the other thing that's, I think, tough is to look forwards in your career and think, well, actually, there isn't there isn't a vast gap between the bottom of band five and the top of band seven compared to other graduate professions where you've got that opportunity to move and to progress and and look at stuff and and so we've got nurses who've been in the profession a really really long time who are incredibly skilled exhausted facing this uncertainty who maybe can retire early or can look at going into a different line of work and and that worries me that we're going to lose this massive experience because of pay and working conditions and so we do all need to pull together to but also interesting you mentioned the band like sexes and sevens there because there's people that don't have aspirations to go into Mm. management or don't have aspirations to go into a clinical speciality so like those really experienced senior staff nurses I mentioned at the beginning who helped me immeasurably like they are the top of their band fives but their salaries what 30 grand they've been in nursing for years and that's Mm. as high as it's ever going to get and that to me is just so unfair there's no recognition of the years of service and years of work they've put in and in six years time I will be at the same level of pay as they're at and I just don't think that's fair there needs to be some recognition there I believe yeah because not everyone should aspire to go to man not I mean everyone should have their dreams and hopes and whatever they want to do but not everyone is going to want to do that and those we need those experienced senior staff nurses who they're the ones who are the mentors for students coming in they're the ones who are working with patients every day whether it be in the community or whether it is in a ward setting whatever your Mm. field of nursing and who is championing and looking after them I know because I didn't come into nursing to be a manager I left management to be a nurse so I'm not going to progress my career and I think I think that is something that we have to acknowledge is the state of the workforce in terms of COVID and moving it forwards but I think you know me I love a positive and it's hard hard to find a positive sometimes (laughs) on some days around COVID but I think the one thing we can take is that we pulled together well yes and and we have to look at nursing and say that sometimes we're not so good at that we're not so good at knowing what other nurses do we're not so good at championing each other you know we we work in these little silos you know even within mental health nursing you've got you know mental health nursing in the private sector mental health nursing in acute wards mental health nursing in the community you've got crisis teams and forensic you know so even within a field of nursing there's many 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 different silos and I think actually when we all came together to face one issue which was COVID it became everybody's priority in whatever format you were dealing with it we were 
a force to be reckoned with. We moved things quickly. We were efficient. We worked together. And that's something we need to harness and take forwards. Because if we do that and we do have that strong voice around pay or conditions or what we want for our patients, then we can really make a massive difference to how how society is. And the other thing is that I think that as a society, we've realized we don't want to lose our NHS. We've seen reflected around the world countries that have tackled COVID without the NHS. And although though I, and I think many others, aspire to be New Zealand, we still we still have to be rightly proud of of our NHS. And, yeah, absolutely. and that's a really that's something we need to hold on to in the in the, the dark days that potentially are going to come. We need to remember that that we have something pretty special. And I think something that I've reflected on this week that one of my colleagues said that I had not thought of, but is really important. All the talk about nurses needing a pay increase, I totally agree with, but it's not because of how we responded to COVID because that's our job. Like we, our job is to be there and deal with whatever is thrown at as a healthcare issue. Yes, we had a global pandemic, but part of our job as nurses is to deal with the response to that. Like yeah. in an acute adult setting, we deal with the medical response. In your mental health community setting, you deal with how people's mental health reaction was to that. That is our job. That is what we are yeah. doing. We shouldn't get the pay rise for doing our jobs. The reason nurses are wanting a pay rise in better terms and conditions is because for years and years, we have been so badly treated that we want that remunerated. Yes, so exactly. the pay rise isn't deserved and we didn't need all that applause for doing our jobs. Yes, it was lovely. And I think the applause really actually helped society and the community more than it actually helped nurses, if I'm honest. I think it was both. It was nice at the beginning to feel like when you were in such an unknown world, living off adrenaline and all that kind of thing, that there was some appreciation that it, that, that we were in that position. So I think, yeah. it, I think you know, I, I know there are some people that are negative about the clapping. I'm, I'm not. But yeah, I agree with you. This isn't, that this pay rise isn't, um, for want of a better word, blood money for going yeah. and dealing with COVID. It absolutely isn't. It's about, and some of it is about people understanding what we do. And, you know, I know that that's something that you and I and, and lots of other people are keen to try and maybe get more of an understanding for people about what nurses do because at the moment that vision is well nurses in full head-to-toe PPE working on wards are the people that have been dealing with COVID and and everybody else has either been moved to that and and actually it's such a diverse you know till you train you don't understand how diverse nursing is like it's insanely diverse and so I think it's important and I hope through this podcast because we we have different experiences and I love hearing about what you do and I'm like oh I didn't know you could do that or you hear about the stuff that I do that that responsibility that we take on is is huge now I'm going back into work tomorrow knowing that I need to catch up with 20 people's lives know where they're up to it might be dealing with something to do with their housing or their you know their medication or something to do with some of them are facing court and we support them through that and uh, has have any of them been admitted to hospital have any of them that is their risk of suicide increased and all of those kind of things I need to get my head around quickly within a day and get back on track yeah. because they're my caseload and although people will have moved them forwards and I think maybe there is that PR exercise for want of a better word and I hate PR but about what do nurses do really and that has to come 
in spite of and alongside of COVID because we needed this anyway. And I think maybe what that, that's why I'm saying about trying to find a positive from it. This stuff existed anyway. This was issues that were, were there, like yeah. you've said, this isn't a new thing, but actually maybe what COVID can give us is that united voice to to take it forward and I think what Covid's also given us in a positive spin is the public's ear because we mm. always know that the public has had nurses in particular's back were always voted the most trusted profession but the public have been so appreciative and are so there for everything we do that if we did do this exercise to really inform them of what how diverse the nursing role is and what we do and why we deserve better pay terms and conditions I believe the only way we will really get it from any government in any country across the world globally nurses need better pay terms and conditions is for the public to get behind us because it needs to be the public driving it I think so and I think just on a a kind of more individual and personal note is that I think we can ask the public to acknowledge that we're in a tough position and that Sometimes just offering someone a cup of tea is a really nice thing. So get behind the (laughs) campaigns, but do all that kind of stuff too, because we're all exhausted. And speaking of cup of tea, Claire, I think I'm going to go and make one. So thank you very much for listening, guys. And we will be back with you soon. Be sure to tweet us any guests that you'd like to have on and anything you'd like us to discuss. So from me, Craig, and from you. And me, Claire. Bye. Bye. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. To make sure you stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe to Retain the Passion on your usual podcast provider. You can follow us on all the social media channels at PodRTP on Twitter, Facebook.com forward slash PodRTP, or see our website www.PodRTP.com for all our episodes. You can follow Craig at CraigDavidson85 on Twitter, or me, Claire, at Manners of Marple. See you next time. All music from this podcast was courtesy of Kevin McLeod. <laughs>